Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. And Linkshus, the place where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Yan. Hi there. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Well, we are talking to Yan Dawson from Jack Daw Research and also a contributor to TechPinions. And I've been reading his pieces a lot and I'm so glad you're actually in Utah, if I'm not wrong. That's right. Yes, I am. Yes. And I also know you have been to Google I.O. and WWDC as well. That's right. Yes. Just over the last three weeks here. Yeah. Yes. You started off your career with Ovum, right? Which is a very well-known research firm on mobile. And then you started Jack Daw Research. What's the story behind your career then? I did. I started with Ovum in 2000. And actually, my history with Ovum goes back even further than that. Both of my parents were involved in various ways with Ovum um, when I was growing up. And so in high school and then in college, when I would do summer jobs and so on to earn a bit of money, I would often end up there doing various administrative things and so on. And uh, I spent uh, two years as a missionary in Asia, actually, I, I lived in Singapore for a few months and I spent a couple of months in Malaysia and spent about a year and a half in Sri Lanka. And so I was in Asia for two years after I finished college. And when I came back again, I went right back to working at Ovum, just again, doing various administrative things. And while I was figuring out what I wanted to do as a career, and I realized they were hiring a lot of people that looked a lot like me and who were just recent college graduates without a lot of work experience. And they were hiring a lot of people like that. And I really enjoyed working at the company. I wasn't really enjoying the work that I was doing then because it was pretty administrative in nature. But I applied for an analyst job there, and, and that was my first analyst job. I was covering telecommunications regulation and went from there and spent 13 years ultimately at Ovum. Uh, first four years in the UK, which is where I'm from originally, and then moved to the US in 2004 and continued in a variety of different roles. And last few years, I was in management roles where I was responsible for uh, our telecommunications research globally uh, for the company. And then late 2013, I decided decided to leave there and start my own firm. It's something that I'd always wanted to do, but the timing never seemed quite right. And it's always a risky proposition. But we had just moved to Utah, where there's a lower cost of living and gave us some financial flexibility to do something there. And so we decided to give that a go. And so yeah, for about the last 18 months or so, I've been running my own firm, which is Jackdaw Research. And uh, the first year was tough. You know, building a new business is always hard. It's risky. And you have to kind of introduce a lot of people to your company for the first time. It takes a while to establish a track record. But uh, the last six months have been great and uh, business is going very well. So I'm very much enjoying it. Mm. So what are your areas of coverage in Jackdaw Research at the moment? Yeah, I cover consumer technology and that's incredibly broad and usually needs a bit more detail behind it. And so I, I talk about five domains that I cover. I cover hardware, so whether devices of various kinds, so smartphones, tablets, PCs, uh, set-top boxes and smart TVs, gaming consoles, all that kind of stuff, that, that hardware. I cover software, that's the second domain, so the operating systems and apps and so on that run on those things. And then I cover the two main activities that we actually use that hardware and software for as consumers, which is uh, content, mostly consuming, sometimes creating content and sharing it, and then communication. So whether that's voice, text, or whatever it might be. Uh, and then the last thing is connectivity, which kind of makes it all possible. And that, that ties back in into my heritage as a telecoms analyst as well. So any of your kind of topics that you cover intersect a lot with Asia? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're all global in nature, really. But of course, in each of those domains, there are different trends going on. You know, Asia in the past has had some quite different smartphone hardware in markets like 
Japan from the rest of the world. It's obviously changing now. You know, the software, obviously different players have been dominant in different regions and so on. From a communications perspective and from a content perspective, there's obviously a lot of regionalization there as well, both in terms of players and in terms of the type of communication and the type of content that people consume. So a lot of it does intersect with Asia and some of the important trends certainly start in Asia, uh, and Asia is becoming increasingly important to all of those things in terms of becoming, you know, very not just one market, but lots of very significant markets for a lot of the technology that uh, maybe originates elsewhere. Mm. So the reason why I ask you here is because I've read a very interesting piece you have written on TechPinions, who I also have interviewed Ben Berheron earlier, was about the messaging mm. apps at as platforms, I also heard the podcast where you chat a little bit about that. So I understand you have a pretty deeper understanding of the three major me- messaging platforms in Asia, which is WeChat, KakaoTalk, and Line. And also they have some significant difference with WhatsApp. So maybe you can give us, give me a sense of what do you kind of interpret messaging platforms as and how do you see them being different from what it is in the Western counterparts? messaging apps then? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what we've seen here in Western markets is messaging apps have stayed pretty much just that. They, they tend to be primarily about messaging and they haven't strayed very far from that starting point. To the extent that they monetize in any way, they monetize the messaging itself. You know, WhatsApp has done very limited monetization so far, but to the extent that it does monetize, it's through, you know, this dollar fee, essentially, for the core messaging features, and there's not much else in it. They've expanded into voice and other forms of messaging now as well, but it's still basically a communications app. There's not much else to it, and it stayed very pure, and it's monetized exclusively through the the messaging app itself. And then you look at the Asian apps, and the, the three that you mentioned in particular, and they basically turn that model on its head, where they don't monetize the messaging part at all, but what they monetize is your usage of a whole variety of other services that are being built on top of that messaging platform. So whether it's advertising, uh, corporate accounts, whether it's you know, stickers and avatars and other digital content, whether it's games, whether it's e or m commerce or payments and banking, uh, you know, Line even has stores where it sells Line merchandise. Uh, you know, they all have different ways to actually monetize the usage, but they've all also, importantly, gone well beyond just messaging, and they've become platforms in a way that is much more like, say, Android uh, in Western markets than it is like, say, Kick or WhatsApp or another messaging app that perhaps might be more popular in the US or Europe. So in your research, you also talk about they actually weave those offerings that goes beyond messaging that you have just mentioned. So Mm. maybe you can talk a little bit about maybe how they actually even sort of go beyond the messaging, go doing things like advertising. I know stickers is something that I use a lot and avatars and can you give a little bit about some of these thoughts like maybe even the corporate brand accounts that we have not seen in the western messaging apps yeah absolutely i mean again the the western messaging apps have been very pure kind of person-to-person communication there's been very little attempt to bring brands into that to bring celebrities into that to have this kind of one-to-many style communication and yet you know in in asia and it, it helps that these apps have tended to be sort of pretty dominant in individual markets. So they built up a really significant base and a significant share of particular markets. And we can talk about that a bit more later, Mm. but that really helps then to make them a great platform for you know, a channel for other things. And so brands want to engage with users and so they create corporate accounts which are often paid for or they spend on advertising to try to reach the users that they want to reach or celebrities uh, create accounts on these 
services to be able to communicate with their fans and the fans might pay a fee a vip fee for example to access some of that content first you know to get it two days before everybody else or to get exclusive content or whatever and so the whole kind of corporate celebrity side of it is something that doesn't really exist in in the western messaging apps but yeah the, the digital content too the stickers and avatars i mean you're starting to see them show up in some of the western messaging apps too but they're an enormous part of how these apps are used in asia and so there's a big cultural difference there as well mm. I, i guess one of the most interesting thing i read about your article in tech opinions was that there, there's actually a very interesting revenue split between these categories versus advertising. So can you kind of elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, a lot of online businesses, obviously, and apps kind of go along with that, have advertising as a major source of revenue. And, and all these companies do have advertising revenue streams. But at WeChat, it's something like 5% of the revenues. At Kakao, it's maybe 10%, 15%. Line, it's a bit higher. It's about 30% there. But the vast majority of these companies' revenues comes from other places. And, you know, with Line, it's becoming an increasingly diverse set of things. You know, they, they've got a taxi service now in at least one market. They've got a music service. You know, stickers and things like that are kind of common to a lot of these services. And, you know, WeChat has the VIP accounts that I mentioned where you pay to engage with a celebrity to get special content from them, for example. As I mentioned, Line has its merchandising uh, revenue stream as well. So the vast majority of these companies' revenue comes from places other than advertising. And it sometimes feels in Western markets like you see a new online service or a new app or whatever, and advertising seems to be the default option that they go with. And yet, you know, these very successful messaging apps from Asian markets have not done that. They do have ads as part of their business model, but it's a, it's a minority rather than the majority of their revenue that comes from that. I can say a lot about that because I see a lot of the line dolls are actually now being displayed in major toy stores as a whole category mm. of their own, actually. So line actually has been very successful with their messaging. But I guess the more interesting conversation is about the increasing regionalization. So I, I think earlier you pointed out that each of these countries, they actually own certain specific geographies. For example, WeChat owns China, Line is Japan, Kakaotalk is Korea. Um, how do you see they play out even for them to go in expanding cross-border in your observation? Yeah, absolutely. It's a good point. I mean, for, for WeChat, it's something like 80-something percent of their revenue comes from China. Kakao is just over 75 percent from Korea. Lion is more diverse already, but it has these four big markets that are about 80 percent of its revenue, and Japan's the largest. And, and when you become dominant in a particular market, it suddenly means you capture a, a kind of a tipping point share of attention, which means that almost everybody that you care about is on the platform, which means that new social tools and things like that can be built on top of the platform. It means that that's where people are going to be sharing the latest thing that they've discovered, whether it's a TV show or a new app or a game or whatever, news and that kind of stuff. And so it, it gains this critical mass. And I think the only company in the US, for example, that has that kind of critical mass, that kind of share, is Facebook, which may help to explain kind of why they are pursuing this kind of messaging as a platform strategy with Facebook Messenger now is they're really the only company that rivals that level of dominance from, from a social perspective in some of these Western markets. Mm. But yeah, it's going to be hard for these apps to, to replicate their business model in other markets because they won't be dominant. They're going to be, you know, among small expat communities to start with. You know, I'd guess a lot of WeChat users outside of China are Chinese speakers and, and perhaps even Chinese natives living in other markets who want to communicate back with people in the home markets. But if you look at 
the feature set for WeChat outside of China and outside of the Chinese language specifically. If you look at the English language version of the app, it's a much smaller feature set. You know, many of the things that make WeChat what it is in China just don't exist in the English language version of the app. And so it's it's tough for these messaging apps to break out of their home country and to have similar success in other markets because <clears throat> there's going to be a more limited feature set, but but also because they're not going to have that kind of critical mass of users. And Line is the only one of the three that's managed to be at least somewhat successful outside of its market. Market. You know, Thailand, Indonesia, and Taiwan are the other three big markets for Lion, and it's got some significant share in those markets. But you know, for WeChat and Kakao in particular, they really struggle to break out of their their home markets.、Mm, I think Kakao recently had acquired Path, right, in the US, yeah, yeah, in Indonesia. So、uh, because of、uh, Path is actually very large in Indonesia, but I guess you have also covered a little bit about the lessons that's learned for the non-Asia messaging apps. I mean, pertaining to Facebook. How about like Snapchat, for example? How about Snapchat? Was yeah, that what yeah. You said? as in as in the lessons learned for non-Asian messaging apps. What what are, what do you think that they would companies like Facebook and Snapchat would do with regards to learning from these Asian messaging apps? Then yeah, I, I actually wrote a, a follow-up piece about a week ago on Tech Pinions called、uh, Ecosystems and Control,、yes. and kind of looked at the the fact that. It, A lot of the ecosystems that have been dominant until now in Western markets have been operating systems, essentially. So iOS, Android, you know, Windows Phone to a very much smaller extent. And yet, when you look at Asia, these messaging apps are kind of taking on that role in these markets instead, and especially taking over that role from Android on Android smartphones, where it's really the engagement with、uh, the ecosystems happening at a layer higher than the operating system,、uh, and in these messaging apps. And so, in Western markets, it's tough because iOS and Android are very dominant. Here, Google and Apple have very strong positions here, and so Western messaging apps trying to break into this layer, if you like, to create this new layer and an ecosystem out that layer, are going to have a much harder time because that role is already largely fulfilled by Apple and Google in those markets, and so they're going to have a hard time doing that. I think Facebook's one of the few companies that looks like it has the potential to do that, and that's because it has the critical mass of users, it has several dominant apps already, and you know the core Facebook app, Facebook Messenger. WhatsApp that they've acquired, Instagram、mm. for photo sharing. With Facebook Messenger, they are clearly starting to build a platform. They started out, you know, with stickers and things like that and gifts. They just announced today that there's the first game built on the Facebook Messenger platform. So they're they're clearly trying to get into this area. I'm very curious to see how successful they are at that. They they seem to be copying that Asian messaging app strategy, but. Uh, I'm not sure if they'll be successful, but I also think Facebook is probably the only Western messaging app that has any chance of making this model work. I can't see anybody else being successful at this.、Mm. Actually, very. I have this interesting question because a couple of us in Asia we have been thinking about this quite a lot. As in, Facebook tried to clone WeChat and Line using Messenger, but not with WhatsApp because WhatsApp have greater coverage in the emerging markets and with、mm. more global influence. Why do you think that they didn't do? I, I think there are two things there. I think you know WhatsApp is very popular in Asia, but、mm-hmm. in Asia, people are already locked into these other apps that we're talking about. You know, in China, they're probably locked into WeChat. In Japan, they're probably locked into Line. In Korea, they're locked into Kakao, and so it's very hard to break into those markets. So even though WhatsApp is you know kind of Facebook's messaging strategy for Asia, in some ways, what they really want to do is say. Okay, we'll do basic messaging in Asia, and hopefully that will grow into something. But in terms of building a platform, our chances are probably better to do that where there aren't these existing dominant platforms. So, you know, we'll focus on Western 
markets and European markets and Facebook Messenger is what's going to be popular there. I think there's another side to it as well, which is that Jan Coombe, who runs WhatsApp, has had this very kind of pure notion of what he wants WhatsApp to be. You know, it's this very lean, very focused kind of app. It has never had advertising and they've kind of promised it won't have advertising. You know, the monetization has been extremely limited so far. So I think philosophically, he's kind of opposed to building this massive platform on top of WhatsApp. And I think there's probably an interesting internal debate and conflict about this at Facebook because, you know, WhatsApp is in some ways a logical platform and base from which to build something like this. But at the same time, the, the, the leadership of WhatsApp has this very kind of pure notion of what they want it to be as a messaging app. And that may be part of what's holding it back as well. Cool. So I actually also wanted to talk to you also about free-to-play games, which is something that actually was pioneered from Asia. And you have this really interesting article that I was reading on the unpleasant economics of that. Maybe you can start off by telling us a little bit about how to how does free-to-play games work. And I mean, in these kind of examples is King, Glue, Mobile, and Supercell, and Zynga, who have actually pioneered social games on that. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's it's something of a misnomer because what makes these games work economically is that they're not ultimately free to play for some subset of their users, uh, but they're free to download is the better way to describe it. So these are games where you pay nothing to download them to your phone. You can play them uh, without ever paying any money. And, and the fact is that the vast majority of users of these games do that, but there's a very small subset of users on these games that do pay for things within the app. So oftentimes it's some kind of in-game currency it's coins or you know game dollars or some other currency that they have and that currency in turn allows you to unlock features or to get weapons or to skip levels or to cheat levels or otherwise progress through the game in a way that's much harder to do if you're just playing the free version of it and uh, in the analysis that I did I looked through the financial reporting of several of the companies that are the biggest makers of the most popular games You've got King, for example, that has Candy Crush and, and some of the others that you mentioned as well have very popular games too. And if you look through their financials, they're making literally cents per user, US cents per user per day, you know, anywhere from sort of three or four up to about 15 cents per day per user. Now, that's a fairly small amount. Over, over the course of a month, that adds up to a fair amount. But, you know, it's a very small amount per total active user base uh, on a daily basis. But if you drill down beneath that a little bit, you start to find that it's a very small percentage of their active users that are actually paying anything on a given monthly basis. It's somewhere between sort of 1% and 2% in most cases. So the vast majority of users are using it for free, but this very small percentage is, is the one that's paying for essentially everything. The model is actually originated from Asia, actually it's from Japan mainly. Why do you think it took that long to get into the US market then? Yeah, I think the the US in particular and Europe, I think they tend to develop their own models for, you know, business models for games and for other apps and that kind of thing and tend to think they know it all. And I think sometimes it takes a long time to realize that models that have worked previously on other platforms don't necessarily work so well on new platforms. And, and you know, when it comes to the App Store, for example, Apple's App Store and obviously Google Play, which closely mirrored it, you know, from the beginning, they've kind of been two basic models. There were, you know, you pay a certain amount per app and 99 cents quickly became kind of the default uh, in the US for the uh, Apple App Store. And the other option is advertising and advertising in-app. And it was only after a while that in-app purchases even became a possibility on these platforms. And it was, took quite a while longer for some of these game makers to discover that actually this was a very lucrative way of approaching the game market, that you could get tons and tons of 
users by having a free-to-download game and that you could then convince some subset of those users to start paying for the functionality. And so it took a lot of the Western companies quite a while. You know, Zynga uh, and King, both being Western companies, it took them quite a while to learn that actually that could be an effective way to make money. The reality, of course, being that it's a very small number of the users that actually do pay for anything. You have already talked a little bit about why the economics didn't work. I think, is it more towards less paying users versus more monthly active users or is it the high lifetime values per paying user couldn't allow instead of trying to monetize more from the free user side? I actually think the economics are fairly good from a financial perspective for now. My big concerns about it are, are twofold and these two things are related. One of them is that it's kind of morally questionable because if you look at the amounts that some of these users are actually paying on a monthly basis, it's it's huge. You know, um, at Zynga, for example, you've got the average paying user paying $40 a month to play some of these games. You know, in King, it's about $20. And then Glue, specifically, in its Investor Day presentation a while ago, had a chart where they showed how much of their revenue comes from users who spend over a certain amount. And the whole of this chart was from users that had spent over $100 over an 18-month or a 21-month period. But there were users that had spent over $2,500 on on these games during that period, which is absolutely enormous. <laughs> and so I just worry what that says in terms of the mindset of these users. And I, I worry that it suggests a certain addiction, a certain lack of control, you know, a, a certain inability to kind of control yourself and, and control your spending associated with that. Uh, and it feels increasingly like these free-to-play games, you know, lucrative though they can be, banking on creating a certain amount of addictive behavior among these users. And, and as I say, morally, I find that somewhat questionable, but you know, from a purely financial perspective too, my concern is that regulators will start to worry about this too and that they will start to step in, that they will put some restrictions on what can be done in these games, that they will perhaps cap spending or enforce warnings or, or other things like that, which will make it much harder to get these huge spenders on these games and spending as much as they are today. Mm. Do you see any other possible monetization models that can rival this kind of free-to-play games Business model? You know, I, there are certainly other models out there. I mean, Minecraft continues to be one of the top grossing games in, in the major app stores month after month after month. It's been out there for years now. And Minecraft has a completely different model. It charges, I can't remember if it's 7 or $8, but it's a one-off purchase costs seven or eight dollars which is significantly more than most apps out there but they make a lot they make a lot of money that way and uh, so that's one good example you know monument valley was another recent game that broke that model essentially where they charged up front for the for the game and and there was a you know a, the the original version of it had several levels that you could play through and it's great fun wonderfully designed game really quite enjoyable to play for both adults and kids and then you know a few months in they they created a whole new set of levels and you paid, again, a one-off purchase to unlock those new levels. Uh, and again, it was very popular. And they, they've shared some of the economics around that. And that's done very well for them. So there are two examples of games that, that have managed to break through and, and make a good, a good amount of money with, uh, with a paid purchase model with a somewhat higher sticker price than most other apps out there. But it's worked for them. So I'm coming to the last part of the conversation because I know you have been to Google I.O. And actually, I wanted my... And also WWDC. My first question is... What are your thoughts on Google I.O. and what are the interesting implications in terms of Google I.O. that actually would impact the next 1 billion emerging markets pertaining to China and India? Yeah, last year's I.O., there was obviously a lot of attention on this Android Android 1 initiative, yeah, which was very much targeted at emerging markets and started out in India. 
And, you know, in the year since then, they've launched in India and a handful of other markets as well, mostly in the Indian subcontinent, to be honest, but a little bit beyond that as well. And, uh, you know, there are certainly mixed reviews in terms of how successful it's been. I think one of uh, Google's big worries is that Android's slowly being taken away from them by OEMs, and especially OEMs in China, who, you know, use the basic AOSP version of Android, but then put their own services on it and so on. They're worried that some of those same uh, device makers who who make Android phones in China will then go to the other markets and repeat that model there. And so I think Android One was an attempt to get a very pure version of Android into the hand of users in emerging markets, starting with India. You know, India's same rough size as China in population terms, but it's been much smaller in terms of smartphone penetration and, and, and the overall size of that market, partly because of income levels and partly for various other cultural reasons. But I think, you know, Google and Microsoft and other companies certainly see India as the next big opportunity beyond China. And so I think Android One was an attempt to go after that. You know, this year's I.O., there was a lot of talk about the next billion. This time around, it was much less about Android per se and much more about individual services and apps. So things like maps and offline maps, including turn-by-turn directions and search and that kind of thing, so that you could download map content when you were, say, on Wi-Fi or somewhere else. And then when you're out and about, instead of using you know what are often fairly constrained mobile networks, you could be using the offline version. It would still work for you. And the same thing with YouTube, too. We could download videos that you could watch later offline. Uh, and so on. So that was a big part of the emphasis. There was uh, a version of Chrome that strips down web pages to a more basic version so that they load faster and use less bandwidth. So it feels like Google's no longer just about pushing Android in these markets, but are actually trying to make the usability of its core services and apps better in these markets. And that's a real pain point, you know, when uh, users in these markets that have, have slower mobile networks, when data usage is very expensive, it's attractive for them to to make that better for users. And, and uh, you know, I, that, that shows that, that Google really is paying attention and isn't just trying to push its own stuff, but is actually trying to figure out how to make it more usable in these markets. There's still a question about over-the-air updates and so on. You know, app updates and, and especially updates to Android itself can be, you know, far larger than, you know, the usage on, say, maps or whatever would be on a daily basis. And I haven't seen anything yet that gets at addressing that issue. Mm. I, I guess the other thing is that also Chrome OS is actually also very popular in the emerging market for laptops for the kids, mainly in the education space. So I, I don't know what, are, what do you, how do you see the Chrome OS and Android when given that most of the emerging markets use them? And from this Google I.O. event, do you see that there's a unifying layer at them at some point. Yeah, there's a big question about whether Android and Chrome OS eventually come together. You know, there are these two operating systems that have mm. historically had very little connection between them. Android is clearly the platform that, that Google sees for the vast majority of devices out there. You know, at, at I.O., they announced this Brillo uh, stripped-down version of uh, Android for use in home automation devices and eventually other Internet of Things devices. At the same time, Chrome OS isn't going away. There really wasn't much about Chrome OS at I.O. this year. But clearly Chrome is also a layer on Android in, in the form of the browser, and they're building more functionality into that as well. So they, they do coexist. And Chrome OS is fascinating to me because it's ostensibly a PC platform, so it's for use in personal computers. But if you look at where it's actually being sold and who's actually buying it, a huge amount of the usage is in education. So it's not you know a personal computer in the sense that somebody owns it. It's used by a school for... Uh, students and pupils. It's also being used for a lot of things like digital signage or kiosks or things like that that, again, are not 
associated with an individual, but a you know corporate environment, um, meeting rooms, and things like that. So it feels like Chrome OS is slowly kind of finding its way into a lot of niches that you know Windows would have been in historically, uh, but not necessarily use cases that are associated with individuals and they're replacing a personal computer. They're more in kind of corporate environments, education environments, and things like that. It's obviously something that, that Google's very keen to bring down the price on, and it's put some real pressure on Microsoft, which you know has tried to bring down the cost of Windows PCs to match and has somewhat succeeded, but still struggles to get down to the very lowest price points. Um, but yeah, there continues to be this question about you know, what the role of Android is in emerging markets versus the role of Chrome OS and, and globally too, and whether the two ever come together. Mm. And actually, there's actually a resurgence of Microsoft now with the Surface Pros. Actually, in Asia markets, people are beginning to use a lot in enterprise. And I think that, there, that this may be Microsoft's re-entry into these markets with a bit tougher competition for Google. My last question, you've been to WWDC. I know it's two days after that. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I enjoyed it very much. It's always kind of a frantic time because there's so much announced and I have to digest it and feed that back to my clients and to reporters and to others who are interested in, in my views on it. But it's always a fun time as well to see what Apple has to announce and so on. And, you know, to my mind, the biggest takeaways from, from WWDC were the, the new watch OS, the music service that was announced, and then just the increased intelligence and the machine learning stuff that Apple announced that was kind of sprinkled throughout iOS and OS 10. You know, I feel like that the new version of the watch OS with the native apps and allowing developers to really tap into the hardware and software in the watch in a bigger way is going to be huge for creating the kind of third-party apps that I think we all want to see and, and have been unable to see so far because developers are being kind of constrained in what they can offer. Mm. And I've always felt that uh, third-party apps would be huge to, uh, to helping take the Apple Watch mainstream. They've been huge in the iPhone and the iPad already, and I think that model is going to apply to the watch as well. Um, the music service, I, I'm personally excited by, you know, in our household, we've used Spotify and other services, but we've always been very disconnected from the music that we own. And I think Apple has this unique opportunity to bring the music you already own and the new music that you discover into the same app and make it kind of tightly integrated and unified. And so I'm curious to see how that works in practice. I, I feel like there's a lot of confusion and uncertainty about the details of the music service still because the presentation was somewhat rushed and, and light on detail. So I'm curious to see how that works in practice later this month. Uh, and then just the intelligence, the machine learning stuff. You know, Google made a lot about uh, a lot of uh, fuss about its machine learning and I/O with Google Now and Google Now on Tap and various other things that it talked about Google Photos. And there's been some talk in the last couple of weeks since then about oh, Apple couldn't do this because Apple wants to preserve user privacy and so it doesn't capture data about its users. Well, what it showed at WWDC this week was that's not true at all. You know, it absolutely can makes services better for users, but it does it in a very different way. It keeps the, the personal information on the device, really respects user privacy. It doesn't try to build a profile for advertisers off the back of that information. And I think they really demonstrated that they can do that well. And I just today started using um, the, the, the developer version of the new version of uh, Mac OS. And, you know, Spotlight Search is great now. You get to do all kinds of new things in Spotlight Search, which really add a lot of value and I think are a great illustration of that. So I, I think that battleground between... Apple and Google over machine learning and the line that you have to draw between privacy and learning about you to improve services and so on. I think it's going to be fascinating to watch over the next couple of years. Mm, that would be interesting. And also, I noticed that in nowadays, every other demo always includes WeChat. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what it yeah. is because the China market is becoming very important to Apple.
Yeah, it was fascinating to see um, the transit directions that Apple announced. I mean, there, was a, there were six U.S. cities, I think, that were included in that, right. and, or six other cities. And then they listed, you know, half a dozen Chinese cities. And then to kind of very offhandedly kind of said, and 300 more. <laughs> so there were, you know, far more cities in China that are going to be covered um, by this new transit map. Uh, from Apple than will be covered anywhere else, which was, I think, another reflection of quite how important Asia and China specifically are to Apple at this point. Mm. So I'll be actually continuing to read your articles in Typinions, but I, my audience want to know where can they find you? Absolutely. So um, I can be found in several places, techpinions.com. I, I have two columns there a week. One is a public column and one is one for TechPinion subscribers. My own blog is at Beyond Devices and uh, that's just those two words with a period or a full stop before the ES. That's my own blog where I blog. I uh, I occasionally write for other publications as well. Some of our TechPinions content gets republished in, in Recode. I'm on Twitter as Jan Dawson, that's J-A-N. D-A-W-S-O-N and uh, love to, to connect with people there. And they can also check you out on Jackdaw Research if they are interested in getting your services as well. That's right. Thank you. Yep. Yep. And you can definitely find me at bleongcw or bernardleong.com or subscribe to our podcast at analyzeasia.com A-N-A-L-Y-S-E asia.com and you can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And please leave your reviews, one star to five stars. We always happen to hear from you. Anyway, Jan, many thanks for coming on to the show. And I'll look forward to speak to you again. Sounds good. Thank you, Bernard.